Welcome, dear readers. You are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are recording today in that island of knowledge we call the Millennium Library, which is located in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our life-giving drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Island of Sea Women by Lisa C. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and my sumbisori sounds very similar to someone gasping desperately for breath after nearly drowning. Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, and I'm the branch head at the Louis Real Library, and I respect the sea because I fear it. <laughs> and uh, next to me, but around the corner, two meters apart is... Hi, my name's Kirsten, and I'm the branch head at the Harvey Smith Library. <sighs> That's my sumbasori. Alright, let's begin. A good book can carry me away from an ever engine ordinary day. Yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone. Close the doors and turn off the phone. Cause all I ever really need is a little more time to read. And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. Your questions and comments make us breathe in fully in anticipation of diving deep into our discussions. You can find our email address and all of our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Be sure to stick around for our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. In a minute, Trevor is going to summarize this month's book. But first, Kirsten will give us a bio of the author. Lisa C is an American writer and novelist born in Paris, France, to Carolyn C., who was a professor, writer, and novelist as well, and to Richard C., who was an anthropologist. Kind of put that in there for Erica, but uh, (laughs) unfortunately, Erica's not here today. Lisa C.'s paternal great-great-grandfather was Chinese, who came to the U.S. to help build the Transcontinental Railroad. Her great-grandfather, Fong C., was the godfather patriarch of Los Angeles Chinatown. Fong C. defied racist laws to marry a white woman, own property, including the first Ford purchased by a Chinese person in America. By the time he died at the age of 100, Fong Si had three Chinese wives and one white one. While Lisa Si does not look Chinese, she actually has red hair and freckles. Her Chinese heritage has always resonated with her, and she spent a lot of time with her father's family in Chinatown. She says, Chinese faces, Chinese culture, Chinese food, they were my mirror. They were telling me who I was. She was not intending to follow in her mother's footsteps and become a writer, but after many years as a book reviewer for Publishers Weekly, she began writing under the pen name Monica Highland with her mother and John Espy, who was her mother's new partner. And the three of them together published two novels under this pen name. And from that experience, she began writing fiction all by herself. She types using only three fingers. She writes 1,000 words a day which is based on advice received from her mother. And she says that research is her favorite part of the writing process, and she is known for her meticulous research, which we totally see evidence here in this book. As a child, Lisa C. said she'd read the first chapter of a book, and then the last, and then the second chapter, 
and then the second to last chapter. (laughs) Back and forth like this until she met in the middle. As a child, she said she just couldn't deal with not knowing how something would work out. She says she still reads books like that. And when writing a book, she often writes the last line first. Breathe, breathe, breathe. That's exactly the last line. I remember it. Yeah. Somebody said that was like the best last line that they'd... And then I had to go back and reread it. Sorry for interrupting. That's okay. She was awarded the Organization of Chinese Americans Women's Award as National Woman of the Year. And she received the History Makers Award from the Chinese American Museum. Lisa C. Mm-hmm. I have many questions. <laughs> <laughs> About the reading. <laughs> uh, well, you said her, her grandfather was the first Chinese man that was able to purchase a Ford. Mm-hmm. Or like, just, yeah. Like they kept stats on that? One of the first books that she wrote on her own was about her family's heritage and Chinese heritage in okay. California. Yeah. So yeah, there must have been stats because she is a meticulous researcher. I have a follow-up question. <laughs> she only uses three fingers to type. Yeah. Which fingers? The two index fingers, I'm guessing? the middle finger of the right hand. I'm just guessing. Huh. What do you think? Well, well, it's dangerous to speculate. It might be the thumb. I was thinking maybe Oh, it's probably the thumb. No, you're right. The the space bar, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But... (laughs) So, yeah. Well, I'm sorry for... No, no, that's fine. And we don't want to talk about how she reads? (laughs) Like the, uh, that, well, well, I, I kind of felt like maybe the way that the book was structured with the parts in the near past and the past intermingled like yeah. that. So you don't have to jump to the back page and the front page. You can actually see the last part of her life playing out. Right. There. So right. I wonder if you read The Island of Sea Women the way that Lisa C. would read books, it would just be a very linear story hmm. because you would... <gasps> like, I wonder if that's the code. Like, if you actually read all the 2008 bits together... Mm-hmm. No, that, I mean, it works well, the structure it is for most people like would it, read yeah. the, the conventional way. But yeah. yeah. Well, before we go into the structure, we should oh, yes. probably do the summary. <laughs> yes, 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 summary. I, sorry, I, I was waiting for Erica to jump in. But here we go. <laughs> Set on the Korean island of Jeju, the island of sea women follows Mija and Young Suk, two girls from very different backgrounds, as they begin working in the sea with their village's all-female diving collective. Over many decades, through the Japanese colonialism of the 1930s and 40s, World War II, the Korean War, and the era of cell phones and wetsuits for the women divers, Mija and Young Suk developed the closest of bonds. Nevertheless, their differences are impossible to ignore. Mija is the daughter of a Japanese collaborator, forever marking her, and Young Suk was born into a long line of henyo and will inherit her mother's position leading the divers. After hundreds of dives and years of friendship, forces outside their control will push their relationship to the breaking point. Let's start off with what did we think of the book? Any opinions? I love the cover of the book. I love the cover of this of this particular copy because it shows two young divers, two young Haiyan Yu, and they just look so powerful and strong and happy which I think really captures Minya and Young Suk, especially at the very beginning. I really enjoyed the book in terms of um, learning how much that we did about the Hayenyu uh, women, the divers who dove down 20 or 30 feet and held their breath for two to three minutes and uh, were the breadwinners for their family, basically did everything, and were these, yeah, super powerful women. And then the, then on top of it, just the history 
uh, because, of course, in our very sort of Western colonial education. I mean, I didn't really learn a lot about Jeju and this horrible massacre that occurred in the April 3rd incident. Yeah, the Mm. 4-3 massacre. Uh, book Sean. So um, yeah, I, I found it a fascinating book and I, and I liked it. Yes, I did. Well, and just following up with what you said about the cover, uh, it was interesting to note that the uh, the illustrate or the photograph they use on the cover is from the National Archives of Korea. So it is an actual historic photo of Henyo in their traditional diving gear. This is when they still wore the white kind of cloth diving gear instead of they eventually become you will wear the more kind of rubber, you know, uh, black wetsuits and things. Right. But but for the majority of the of the novel, they were wearing these very traditional handmade clothing and and the uh, their um, buoys were uh, like gourds or something that right. were uh, that were kind of hollowed out and, and used and that and and so but yeah I, I just just following up with what you said every once in a while a book comes along that's like a gift and, and I think this book was like a gift for me it was a book that I was not expecting it was not a book that I would probably ever have picked up on my own but because it was selected for the book club I read it and I just thought like what an amazing opportunity to get into the the lives fictional lives, but based on meticulous research of two women growing up in this fascinating culture during a tumultuous century, uh, learning so much about Korean history and and about relationships and friendships and forgiveness. And, and then there's lots of very dark mm-hmm. moments in the book, but also moments of grace, moments of forgiveness, moments of brightness. Uh, despite the darkness, or maybe because of it. And so, uh, yeah, my opening thoughts are, I I loved this uh, novel. And I was thinking that, you know how in history, sometimes there are certain books that almost like spark a movement, like you think of like Uncle Tom's Cabin, or To Kill a Mockingbird, novels that have sort of take on more. And this book could be that book for the the 4-3 massacre and the Korean history, if only more people would read it. And if this was something like, it just seems like this is this is the story that needs to be told mm-hmm. about something that I honestly never heard of before. Mm-hmm. I never heard of Jeju Island. I mean, I had the vaguest notion of what the Korean War was about. Like, so, yes, a total gift. I'm so glad we got to read this one. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this book too. And again, this isn't a book I would have picked up on my own. I will say about the cover. It looks like such a cheerful cover yeah. that you're totally not ready for all of the chaos and stuff that happens within it. Like I was not expecting so many war crimes when I opened up mm-hmm. that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, considering that my first introduction to Korea, like in my consciousness was uh, MASH, mm. you know, when I was growing up. So I knew there was a war there, but I knew about the one right? I knew about the Korean War from the American perspective. And I mean, that that show did cover bad things happening, but it was a comedy. And I was a kid, it was hard to grasp all of that. And it wasn't MASH on the air longer than the Korean War actually happened in real life, I think. I think there's some story about that. Yeah, although, yeah, that's a a thing that's commonly said. But it occurs to me, too, with all of the aftermath of the war, that actually dragged on so long like the the April 3rd incident was years in the the consequences and everything that fell out of it. Right. So I don't know, when does a war really end, right? When people stop getting, I mean, they couldn't even talk about it until relatively recently. People were punished for talking Mm -hmm. about that incident. Well, and that Uh, whole uh, guilt by association system. Right. Oh my goodness. Right. And the whole idea. 
and being so scared to for their their loved ones to say anything or do anything or or thinking well they won't be able to go to university because guilt by association yeah and the whole idea that these horrible war crimes occurred and then these people are still living in these villages together and they mm-hmm. have to live together with people mm-hmm. that are on the other side or were on the other side and they may have done lasting damage, but they see them in the in the street and they see them in the market. And and this how does this community like survive and go on? You know, one of the one of my favorite lines in the uh, the book, uh, I'm probably going to miss. No, I think I have it here. It's. Uh, fall down eight times, stand up nine. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that could almost just be like the tagline for the the entire story. You know, as many times as these characters get knocked down and have horrible things happen, they get up again and they move on. And so you can think of that not only in terms of an individual, but also the whole idea of, you know, the next generation taking over from the last and that, you know, eight generations are gone, but the ninth continues. And yeah, anyway, yeah. Fun fact uh, that fall down eight times, stand up nine was also used in Batman Begins. Um, (laughs) But I like the way it played out here better. (laughs) 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 So one of the things we're talking about here is all of the damage that happened to people between people uh, living very close to people who have participated in these things that caused damage to you and your family. The book really focuses a lot on forgiveness. And that's one of the questions we put out on social media. Do you think forgiveness is important and necessary on both personal and societal levels? And what do you think is forgivable and what not? And I'll tell you, that question sat with me a lot mm. reading this. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, well, even just when you were just talking about, you know, the wars and not knowing very much and how, yeah, how much they had to endure and how that lays forth sort of intergenerationally. And we, you know, live in a country that has not had a war on our land um, in terms of like the world wars. And, and so people always are sent away. But I just kept thinking about the indigenous folks who endured atrocities, uh, some of them very similar, and how it's being passed down intergenerationally as well. And it's the, the same aphorism could be used for them too, you know, fall down eight times, get up nine. And the whole idea of forgiveness, it made me think about that too, and forgiveness and reconciliation and how when Harper did the apology and he wanted forgiveness and there was some forgiveness given because they said to heal we need to forgive and that just really struck me as I was reading this for some reason and because I can't it's sort of a hard situation to put yourself in like in the book young Sook can't forgive Minya for doing something that I don't know if I could have done what what she was asking Minya to do either and meanwhile she didn't forgive her that whole time and so then she couldn't actually heal herself so I think I don't know if there's anything that's not forgivable well I, I thought about that subject yeah. a lot and personally I mean in the book Mija was reaching out and seeking forgiveness from Young Suk, or at least she was trying to do what she could to make reparations. She like helped uh, Young Suk's daughter. She mm-hmm. uh, tried to explain, tried to go there and face her and be ready to take it. Like she mm-hmm. was ready to get lambasted by her and yeah. just kind of here I am, you know. So she was seeking it out. But people who are in situations where 
the other side is not trying. Yeah. I don't think you have to forgive a person in that situation. I think a person who has been abused, like a child who was yeah. abused by an adult, I don't think they have to forgive anybody right. unless they choose to. Right. Yes. People sometimes do make that choice. They Like I've heard this description of forgiveness as something you do for yourself. You forgive someone so that it's off your mind, mm-hmm. your heart. And then, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to reconcile with them and suddenly you're buddy-buddy. Absolutely not. You know, yeah. But uh, kind of a letting go. But in situations like that, in abuse situations, in mm-hmm. there's a lot, frankly, there's a lot of situations, especially when the other party is not trying. Right. And I think the forgiveness part, I think, is for you so that if you are hoping to move on and because, I mean, we could see how that was for young Sook. She wasn't able to really. Well, and she also seemed to feel that if she didn't hang on to it, she would have dishonored her husband Absolutely. and her child. Yeah, that was yeah. such a big thing. It, it was terrible because she was mm-hmm. holding on to that. It's like, well, if I do this now, it's like I'm saying it's okay that they died. Which is not what it would be saying necessarily, you can say from the outside looking in, but that's how she felt about it. And that's one of the reasons she couldn't let it go. Well, it's interesting too, because the hurts that uh, young Sook and the outrageous tragedies that happened to her happened in her lifetime. They were directly related to her and her family. Uh, But myself, like uh, from an Irish background, the Irish tend to uh, have long memories and carry grudges over generations. So Forgiveness sometimes has to go back hundreds of years because the hurt is passed from generation to generation to generation. And if they don't keep that front and center, then there's the worry that they'll forget. So forgiveness mm-hmm. is is almost seen as a letting go, uh, as, a, as, a, as a negative. Right. Although personally, I agree with both what you said that forgiveness to me, it's a necessary step in your personal healing. And it doesn't matter about the other person at all. It's not about the other person or the situation because like in life we can only control or make decisions on things that we can do ourselves. We don't know what other people are thinking or doing. You know, if we've learned anything in the last few months, the world is crazy and unpredictable. So, but if by granting forgiveness, giving forgiveness to something that has hurt you helps you to move forward and heal, then it's absolutely essential. And, and I would say, yeah, there's nothing that's not forgivable. If forgiving is what's going to get you better or moving along or leave that in the past. Yeah. And I think like with the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada, I mean, it's so important that we have a historical record and account of what happened because we cannot forget. And in terms of most people, we have to learn about it too. Folks need to be educated. And it's the same with this book too, that people need to know about it. We can't forget Exactly. And and if it wasn't for this book, the three of us would never have heard of the 4-3 massacre. We wouldn't have known any of these things. And so that's the was the maddening thing about it, too, is that we get into these characters' heads and we learn their lives and we live with them and with their successes and their, we were weeping with, their, with them in grief. But yeah, to the outside world, no one knows these stories. You know, there might be like, oh, yeah, there was some uh, uprisings or whatever, or the, you know, the UN was involved or the American soldier. But but it's just not talked about. And I think the erasing of it is just adding hurt upon hurt Mm -hmm. that uh, goes towards what you're saying about the truth and reconciliation is as painful and as awful as these stories are. They are necessary to hear them and to uh, have them in the open and acknowledge them that they're there if there's any chance of moving forward. Yeah, I was reading a review or I was reading some comments on um, Goodreads and there were a few people saying, oh, it's such a, such a depressing book and it is, does anything good happen in there? And <laughs> No, 
I mean, yes, there are some good things and some of it is quite heartwarming and, but like, but this is, this is what happened and we can't shut our eyes to, to what happened in Korea, in Jeju, in, in Canada. Yeah. Just because it's so horrific. We have to hear the horror. People often talk about the horrors of war. Mm-hmm. And every time I've heard that phrase in the past, I always think of the soldiers being sent off to fight and die, mm-hmm. which I think is how it's often framed. Yeah. And in this book, like the soldiers weren't the focus. It was all about the people who just kept getting run over by soldiers back and forth. First, they're dominated by the Japanese, and then there's the Korean War, and then there's their own people coming in and killing them and burning villages and all of that stuff. And it's... They had nothing to do with any of it. It's just, they just, they fish, they, mm-hmm. you know, uh, raise their kids, they live their lives. And it's kind of like in Afghanistan. I remember reading stories about American soldiers would come up to Afghani villagers and be like, hi, uh, it's like, oh, more Russians. And it's like, oh, we're not Russians, we're Americans. It's like, well, to them, it didn't make well, any yeah, difference. Right. You were other people who come here and blow up our stuff and kill our people. And that was really personalized here with all of the stories of, you know, you're lying in your bed and all of a sudden there's noise. And it's like, do you go check or do you stay inside or what do you do if you go outside? You might get shot. Is it terrifying? And and when we reach later parts of the novel where Jung Suk is clearly uh, suffering PTSD and is paranoid about everything that she has to deal with, it's like you, you start to feel it at that point. It's like, yeah. There never has been a time where you could be free and open here because things kept happening to you and it was never in your favor. Yeah, that's why it was so lovely to read the descriptions of the diving and the going into, even though it sort of sounded also a bit terrifying. I mean, I, I love the water and I, but it brought such, there was one point where they were talking about like the sort of the bliss, the euphoria that they got, mm. you know, as they were diving and that the ocean was, you know, offered the comfort of a mother or better than the comfort of a mother. When I was reading that too, it reminded me of like years ago when I was much more into sports and I would read about like the psychology of playing at a high level. Uh, and they call it, you know, getting into the flow. And and these high-level athletes, they kind of, they go into the zone. They kind of depart from their regular mental faculties and they're just focused on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That happens to people in all kinds of professions when they're really, really highly skilled. And when I was reading that, it's that was what they were describing. Yeah. They were in the flow because they were these incredibly highly skilled divers and fisher. I don't even know what you call them. Not like fishing har- the way I think of. Harvesting kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, ocean husbandry or hmm. husbandry seems the wrong word here. Ocean <laughs> wifery. Yeah. But, uh, but there's yeah. a stewardship element to it where they knew yes. not to take too much yeah. and, and knew when to go at certain times and they, their knowledge of the natural world, they, they were such a part of it mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, and because of their skill in that, it was like you were saying, a refuge from all the other stuff that was happening and everything was going wrong. They would still dive mm-hmm. except for the period where they were banned from it. But dive in, be their skilled, amazing workers and uh, have something at the end of the day that they could feel good about. And it was it was relief yeah. in the middle of a lot of trouble. And that solidarity and sisterhood as well. Yeah, you know? yeah that was the whole just thing so the, beautiful. The just, or, yeah. yeah, just 
gathering there around the fire yeah, and, and to kind of, talk and, and gossip and, and, and kind of uh, ribbing each other yeah. good naturedly <laughs> about each other's catch and, mm-hmm. and things. Yeah, just so the camaraderie. Yeah. And the mutual respect. And, and yeah. what we would call locker room talk here. Yeah, that's except right. it's bull talk. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and complaining about their husbands being yeah. lazy and slow <laughs> and, you know, all, all these kinds of uh, stereotypes that came out. But just uh, your comments, Dennis, about the idea about the ocean being a, a place of, of refuge just made me think of this other quotation, if you uh, allow me to read it. It's after the, the horrible massacre and uh, Young Suk is living with her uh, mother-in-law. And they finally have the uh, conversation about the day that Yuri became injured, brain damaged from being under the water too long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And her mother-in-law says, you showed courage. This is talking to young Suk. You showed courage, even though it was your first dive. Becoming a Hanyo chief is what your mother planned for you too. She was a good mother to you and she trusted you. And you have been a good mother to your children. And now you must be an even better and stronger mother. Children are hope and joy. On land, you will be a mother. In the sea, you can be a grieving widow. Your tears will be added to the oceans of salty tears that wash in great waves across our planet. This I know. If you try to live, you can live on well. Mm-hmm. And that, that little paragraph, like I just, mm-hmm. that, that to me is, the, is the, the, the book in a capsule, the idea of these two worlds. And you, the, the ocean is uh, a place of, of safety where you can let your guard down, but it's also a place of danger and a place of sustenance. And I just love that the whole time young Suk thought that her mother-in-law Do Sang was holding her responsible for what happened to Yuri. But at the same time, it was a misconception. And again, it was almost like the misconception she had with Mija uh, that her anger and unforgiveness blinded her to what was really happening around her. So I thought that was very telling. Because then when, um, you know, the twins. Oh, yeah, I love them. (laughs) Guja Guja. and Gusum. Yeah. And one of them because of her other sister, lost their daughter. And I know that young Suk was just so shocked that um, they still wanted to swim together mm, because for yeah. her, like she really had a hard time with this whole idea of forgiveness. Yes. You know, but meanwhile, she saw it played out yeah. where people So powerfully forgave, too. Yeah. But she just could not bring herself to see how that related to her own situation. Well, the thing is, I think she did see how it related to them, but she still could not gr- go the honor over that. for her husband and her children. Yeah, she could not let go, even though she saw someone else in not exactly the same situation, but with, you know, a deep pain, able to still do that, still hang yeah. on. Yeah. And it was pretty incredible, I mean, to turn around like that and continue to dive with her so close after that. Yeah, Gusan and, yeah, and her yeah, sister. Yeah, it was yeah. just incredible. Yeah, yeah. And to also recognize that, um, no, I need to step away from being a chief. Like, you know, yeah. the, the chief diver, and I need to hand this over to, to Young Sook. Yeah, and I, I like too how she said, you know, the reason that I didn't forward Young Sook for this before and why I am doing it now is because she has suffered this loss. Yeah. And she will prevent us from having this again because she knows. Yeah. And she did. Yep. So, yeah, yeah that was pretty incredible. Yeah. So smart. Oh, yeah. This kind of ties into another question we asked. Uh, the aphorism, deep roots remain tangled underground, is used to describe Young Suk's and Mija's friendship. And we saw that played out in a number of places because small communities and everyone was tied together. How do we feel about that? Can you remove yourself from the connections of your past? I mean, I feel no. 
<laughs> Even if we try, I mean, there's some things that that you all, I think that you almost inherit despite yourself sometimes and not inherit like something sort of genetically, but you inherit an experience or a way of being even, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like, I think that it is true. I think even from a neurological perspective, yeah. like everything, all the inputs you have shape the way your brain develops and you can't really unshape it. You're, you're only a blank slate once. If, mm -hmm. if at all, as a baby, right? Mm -hmm. And then after that, every experience you have, it just kind of uh, alters the way your brain develops. So, so I, don't, I don't think you can really escape your past. You can learn from it and mm -hmm. build on it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, you can't, can't get out from under it totally. I know that your question has had to do with Young Suk and, and Misha, but I was thinking back to the twins as well. When, when Young Suk was asking, how could you forgive? And she says, I'm like, well, she's my blood. Yeah. Uh, I, how can I not forgive? Like mm -hmm. it was just, it was, it was simple for her in that there was no question that the forgiveness just had to be automatic because they were so entwined. But yeah. I mean, still with, with Misha, like, I mean, she was open. She would try to create other openings for uh, reconciliation several times through the latter half of the book, even when she was living in America and she had her son send the letters every yeah. month. And, and then, and then the, 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 the rubbings, uh, oh, the rubbings know, that would come that. in the letters that yeah, young Suk didn't find out till the very, very end. Cause she never looked at those letters. She kept them, but she put them away. And uh, only at the very end did she also, she didn't even know that her own daughter had died right. of breast cancer. Right. You know, yeah. like, yeah. these are she, the, she gave up a lot. She gave up so much. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, reading that last chapter where oh. all of that unfolded oh, and okay. she saw all of it come mm. out, I teared up like mm -hmm. I, because that was just such, it was, this novel really builds up to that conclusion and you can see the inevitability of it sort of, but also like, you could you could just imagine Jung Suk like, oh my God, why didn't I do this yeah. earlier? Yeah, you know why did I wait until now? Mm -hmm. uh, when it's too late and she's gone, yeah. and you can't get together anymore, and yeah. it just it was a real heart punch. Yeah, yeah. I really love those scenes where between Clara. And uh, young Suk, where you know she's this you know teenager with her her uh, earbuds in and her her iPhone and and you know we find out as well it's her great granddaughter, but it's really you know trying to find her and, and and kind of pester her before the opening of the museum and those kinds of uh, contacts that really it was you know the innocence of this child who doesn't know didn't know all of the backstory mm -hmm. uh, coming forward. I, I thought I just th those little exchanges could have been schmaltzy, but they, I, I just thought they were just just perfectly balanced. Yeah. Well, you know, at the beginning too, when you first meet Clara, who I, I thought the name was interesting too, because Clara provides clarity. But yeah, at the beginning, she is just an annoying teenager with her earbuds in. It's only later when you realize the earbuds are in and she's listening yeah. to her great grandmother's voice. Yeah. And she was relentless in her pursuit of uh, Young Suk to yeah. like, no, no, you got to hear this. And based on the interview, like the way she was talking with her great grandmother, uh, you knew she was kind of ticked at Young Suk. She was upset. She yeah. felt that yeah. her Clara great grandmother, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Clara she was upset. Saying, oh, she must have been a terrible person. And she goes, no, 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 she wasn't. Or, you know, yeah. how do you yeah. feel about that? It was awful. And like, no, you have it all wrong. It was, yeah, it's it fascinating to see that. 
And and despite what could have been Clara's anger, and she could have decided to no, we're not wasting our time with this woman. She was uh, she was a jerk to you. She hurt you, and she we're never gonna deal with her again. But no, she carried out Misha's wishes and went and sought her out. And that's not an easy trip, no. you know. And she went there and she fought for Misha's voice to be heard, and she got it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that was mm-hmm. pretty incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Speaking of daughters, uh, one of the questions we had asked was, uh, in the Island of Sea Women, it's expected that a daughter would follow in her mother's footsteps. How common is that today, personally or professionally? I know I didn't follow in my mom's footsteps professionally, because I think professionally, back then, you know, I think lots of moms had sort of more traditional jobs. And I think that has sort of expanded now. And, and um, not everyone, of course, had a traditional jobs. But um, I think in terms personally, I like many others, um, I think, try or would like to think that I am like my mother in all of her good ways. <laughs> and of course, I end up being like my mother in like, I can hear her voice and uh, some of her maybe snarkiness. I you know, I have that as well. We did get Cher Werstiak on Instagram said that she has respect for all integrity and empathy. And I get that from my mom and my grandma. So I almost think it's more like that women follow their mother's footsteps in terms of personally rather than professionally. I mean, you know, these high end you, that was the expectation. And that was a very um, unique thing as well. Um, yeah. And there weren't nearly as many job opportunities on the island anyway, I yeah. think, in that society. Yeah. Up until modernization and, uh, you know, when they could leave and go off to school and mm-hmm. stuff more easily. Well, it's interesting. Like I was so fascinated with the, the Hanyo and, and their culture that I did a little bit more reading and the fact that it was profession practiced exclusively by females and there were a number of explanations why some may be more important than others but the idea that the distribution like the physiological their uh, the women's bodies uh, had uh, the distribution of fat uh, insulated them against the cold and allowed them to stay in the sea for as long as eight hours even during the coldest winter months but this part was really interesting was that there was a socio-political factor where in confucian law which uh was sexist uh, up until the beginning of the last century, Korean law did not recognize female labor. So what that meant was that the henyo were excluded from taxation. Mm-hmm. So when they brought their catch in for the day, they were able to bring the entire income home and sell it. So they, so uh. it was kind of this interesting, like backwards kind of, it was a, you know, a sexist policy, but had this unintended consequence of providing this independence of sorts to these women who could then have a little bit more control over their their own finances. So I thought that part was very interesting. Mm. She did briefly mention that at the beginning, something about taxation and mm. didn't follow up on it. So that's uh, good to hear that. Yeah. Uh, which also kind of ties into the whole matrifocal focus of the society, because the women were the head of the household. They would go work. They would uh, bring home the catch. They would run things and the husbands would stay home and take care of the kids. But at the same time, when they got back from the sea, they're immediately taking the kids and breastfeeding them and doing all of the other stuff that women often do in many societies. So I kind of felt like, you know, the matrifocal society in the situation is like, here, do everything. Mm-hmm. 
And then the men can talk about Confucius while sitting under a tree and go shopping. And uh, yeah, it was very yeah, interesting. It, it really kind of because at first when I was first reading that this was going to be talking about a matrifocal society and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And then the more I read, the more I was super annoyed, you know, that so the birth of a son meant that they would be going to school. And mm-hmm. she was and young Sook, even, you know, when she had her daughters and her husband wanted to make sure that all of their children, including the daughters, got educated. And she was like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. It's their role to actually pay for the schooling for the for the sons. And that was sort of hard to read because but I mean, this is how it is now as well. You know, we work and. I mean, I know, Trevor, you're probably a very engaged dad and, and father and husband at home as well. I'm pretty much under but, a tree talking about Confucius or to my with neighbor. your puny <laughs> thoughts. And <laughs> but um, I, I think that it's still happening today where the women are, are working, but then they come home and then they're still doing the bulk of the work. I think that that's been proven and, you know, making all the um, doctor's appointments and, you know, just still sort of needing to be um, the person to do all that, being responsible for that. So I was hoping, I guess, to see that, yeah, the men then continued to just do the work at home after she would come out of the ocean and uh, would sort of be be cared for. I guess you would have dinner on the table. So that's good. Dinner on the table, but the, the women were the ones that were harvesting the vegetables. I know, that's right. And the, and the grains. But And it was amazing that they w- were so happy when they would get pregnant and then they would dive all through their pregnancy. Yeah, and it, that was crazy. Young Sook was like, oh, hopefully I'll give birth in the water. Yeah, Wouldn't that yeah, be great? Yeah. And instead she gave birth on the, you know, on the boat. And, and then yeah. the little babies would be on the boat yeah, in yeah. Vladivostok. Yeah. And, and that, that, that uh, Russian uh, captain would be, you know, if the baby started to get hungry, he would bring the boat over. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're going to need to be breastfed. Like, amazing. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. the strength of these women is just remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, the incredibly dangerous work. I mean, in Young Sook's first couple of dives, there were, you know, one person with permanent brain injury and another and her mother, mother. dead. Yeah. Um, just like, hey, welcome to the workforce. Yeah. This is what you deal with every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And you still have to do everything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't calling um, Trevor out with his puny thoughts. They, they actually talked about, it's, it was very funny the way that they would, that all the women would be around the fire and talk about, you know, men and how they spend all their days talking about Confucius under the tree with their puny thoughts. And I loved it when the grandmother was um, trying, uh, was telling Young Sook, uh, well, just maybe keep a little bit of the allowance that you usually give your husband, keep some <laughs> for yourself yeah. so that you can go and visit Minya in, yeah, in, in the city. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. So, but just the way that they would sort of rib each other and talk about the men and well, I mean, yeah. you know, they are very sort of, yeah, they don't have, they can't think the big broad thoughts yeah. that we women can. Yeah. Do we have any final thoughts on this book? <laughs> if there's uh, any uh, uh, common theme across all our books, it seems to be that octopuses are not to be trusted. <laughs> Yeah. Another octopus. Yeah. I'll just say this. Uh, if you're wondering if this book might be interesting, yes, it's very interesting, uh, very deep, and I very much enjoyed it. So glad we read it. Ditto. I will third that second. And it really did, like, obviously, Trevor went and did some research, and I know... Dennis, you went to watch and you watched uh, UNESCO. Yeah. And yeah. actually, we'll link. There's a great 
UNESCO video on the Henyo I found on YouTube uh, where you get to hear the Sombisori as they're coming out of the water. And uh, Kirsten did a pretty good job of it in the <laughs> intro. Uh, but it wasn't the sound I was expecting, but it was really interesting to hear and to uh, watch. And you could actually see the Boltocks that they had there. So it made it easier for me to visualize that in the story too. But, and uh, even, even on Lisa C's uh, website, actually, she has quite a bit of information about her research and some old photographs. And that was just fascinating to see. And yeah, the whole Sambasuri, I was trying to find, you know, uh, what it actually sounded like. Because in my mind, when I was reading about it, I thought it would be sort of this <gasps> kind of uh, sound. And then in these videos, you would just hear these the whistles mm -hmm. uh, and a whistle like a dolphin or a whale, um, because that's what they were copying. I mean, they were learning from these these um, animals um, to be able to actually hold their breath that long. So it's actually quite a beautiful sound. Yeah. Yeah. The whistling. Yeah, I also like the idea that they were just slightly different enough that you could, there was an individual quality to them. So when you heard it, uh, when the other Hanyo heard a particular one, they, it gave them sort of like a, uh, a bearing as to where they were and if they were doing okay, because if right. they surfaced, they heard it, okay, oh, they're up, you know, they're, and if they hadn't heard a certain, some story for a while, then that was a cause for concern. So yeah. the fact that they could distinguish between them, like, yeah. like bird calls or exactly, something, you know, yeah. 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 Let's move on to our segment of the show called, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Who would like to go first? Well, I could uh, flip the script a little bit, and uh, <laughs> this may be the uh, time to read first, where I would like to uh, tell you about a book that you won't like. Um, <laughs> and uh, this all goes back to the idea of really enjoying The Island of Sea Women by Lisa C., and appreciating all the diligent research she did. But I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn more about Korea. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll read some nonfiction about it. So I found this book by Simon Winchester called Korea, A Walk Through the Land of Miracles. And I started reading it. You would think the concept of the book would be right up my alley because what it is is apparently there was a Dutch shipwreck way back in um, the 1600s where a bunch of sailors sea men, if you will, uh, crashed on Jeju, the island of sea women, and they were captured by the people there. And because it was a security kind of threat and they were marched from Jeju, well, I guess they were put on a boat and they're taken across the sea and then marched uh, up pretty much the middle of Korea to where Seoul is now. And they were kept there for like 10 years. And then a couple of them escaped and then wrote about their experiences in Korea. And it was the first Western account of, of Korea. So Simon Winchester decides, well, I'll just walk in those footsteps and, and see mm. what Korea is like nowadays. But first of all, he did this like in, in the mid 80s. Um, and he, I should say Simon Winchester has written some other very interesting books, most notably Krakatoa. But this one, I don't know if I'm just reading things with a different lens these days, but it was felt very uh, paternalistic, very condescending, very almost like vaguely like misogynistic in the in the way that he was talking about the people. And and I just uh, I read the first section because that's the section I was most interested in because I had to do with Jeju Island, but I didn't get very far into it. Mm. And it's 
I don't, I don't know what, what to say. It's, he, he's a, he's a, a British guy. Yeah. So it's a, framed very much, you know, in a Western kind of a colonial sort of uh, mindset. So but I don't want to leave you on a negative. Uh, <laughs> that's Simon Winchester's Korea. So I found another nonfiction book. Now, again, it's also a, a British guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe we don't want to read a book about Korea right. by a Korean. Uh, hopefully, eventually, I will actually find uh, a Korean history book written by uh, a Korean. But until I do, Daniel Tudor, at least, he uh, has lived in Seoul for many years, and he was the Korean correspondent for The Economist mm. magazine. And this one was just, uh, came out just a couple of years ago, you know, when the Olympics, the Winter Olympics were in Korea. So it's almost like a guide. In fact, Dennis uh, commented, it looks like a guidebook from the front. Mm-hmm. It's called Korea, the Impossible Country. And it's just very an interesting modern look at uh, the economics, the politics and the culture of Korea. Uh, and it's very well um, sort of researched, but also from a Western point of view. But if you want to read more, I would definitely recommend Daniel Tudor's Korea, The Impossible Country. And you can uh, avoid Simon Winchester's <laughs> Korea. And for any Simon Winchester fans out there, I, I, I look forward to your emails. <laughs> <laughs> My book is a graphic novel called Grass. And it's by Kim Suk Jendri Kim. And it is a firsthand account of a Korean girl named Oxion Lee, who was forced into sexual slavery or to be one of the comfort women for the Japanese Imperial Army during the Second World War. And Gendry Kim interviews Oxion Lee years, years later in a nursing home. And so similar to the island of sea women, we sort of go back and forth. And Gendry Kim sort of builds this relationship with uh, Oxian Lee and then receives this story. And it's very anti-war, as I think even the Island of Sea Women is. I mean, I think whenever you write about the atrocities of words and it's an anti-war book, the drawings are, um, there's just lots of dark ink and sort of wild lines. And it's quite stark and it's super powerful. And I really, really enjoyed it. And it just opened up a whole different area of knowledge for me about these, uh, these comfort women. It's also not an easy read, but it's an important read. And the book Grass is translated from the Korean by Janet Hong, who is an award-winning translator based in Vancouver. So that is Grass by Kim Suk Jendry Kim. So I'm going to take a page out of Kirsten's book. Mm-hmm. And instead of recommending a book you might also like based on this book, because I don't have any solid recommendations, except maybe read more books by Lisa C. She seems to know <laughs> what she's doing. And was, but another book that I read this past month is The Player of Games by Ian Banks. Back when we did our New Year's episode, uh, we talked about books that we wanted to read this year, and uh, I had mentioned Ian Banks' culture series as a set of books that I wanted to explore. And I started doing that, and The Player of Games is the second book in the series. Uh, And this one gives a little more insight into the culture, which is the civilization in space uh, that is the cornerstone of the series. And... It's a wonderful place to live because it is all post-scarcity in a galactic civilization that has all of the resources it needs to provide anything that any of its residents could possibly want. You want to know what it's like to live as a woman, but you're a man? 
it's not a problem. You can convert. You can be a woman for a while. You can raise children. You can become a man again. You can move anywhere you want in this huge section of the galaxy. You can get any kind of job you want because the artificial intelligences that run the place will just help you try to find something that will make you happy. And I want to live there right now. <laughs> the, the book in particular follows the story of a game player who needs a bigger challenge and ends up being involved in a situation that becomes uh, interstellar political intrigue in a way that he had not anticipated. And at the end of the book, you may find that many games were being played, not all of which any of the characters were aware of at the time. So The Player of Games by Ian Banks. That makes me think, I wonder what I said I was going to read during that New Year's podcast. Right. I'm going to have to revisit that. Yeah, and see. listen to the episode. Yeah, mm -hmm. and maybe a future episode we can report back on yeah. how we did. Or if we did. If we did. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, in which our hosts natter on about individual units of language, <laughs> much to the amusement and delight of us all. <laughs> <laughs> natter, natter. <laughs> Well, I'll just get mine out of the way because I don't need to probably um, go into much more detail about my word. My word is Sumbasori. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we've spent quite a bit. Thank you very much, Kirsten, for that demonstration. Uh, and as just a quick definition, uh, which we may have actually come out, we've talked a lot about it, but it's when the henyo would come up from, from, the, from diving, holding their breath the entire time. They would uh, let out an, an exhalation. Their lungs would have been compressed because of the pressure of the water. So a very sort of forceful exhalation followed by a very large inhalation because at that point their lungs would have expanded to their full capacity. And the sound, we talked about it again. Oh, I'm just repeating ourselves. We talked about this all. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to bring up one thing that, that didn't come out in our discussion of Simbasori is that there was um, some research done on on the meaning of the of the word. Um, so of course it, it means uh, breath sound, but there's a parallel meaning that it means overcoming, and it's the idea that the Henyo were the ones who led the anti-Japanese resistance movement last century and witnessed the large loss of the male population on the island after the fall of Japanese rule when American and South Korean forces massacred those suspected of supporting the reunification with North Korea. In this light, the sounds of the Sumbasori became charged with the expression of trauma and the working through of suffering. They are impregnated with the potential to operate as a marker of a historical event and a nonverbal transmitter of memory, of resistance, of rising above the circumstances. Therefore, the Sumbasori is a complex cultural sound object the product of a subculture operating within a particular political, geographical, historical, and gender specificity. And that was written by Dr. Cha Hyang Young, who has done quite a bit of extensive research on the Henyo. So, super story, one last time. Mm -hmm. Super, well, inter what, super last, interesting. Can we uh, hear it one more time, Kirsten? I think. <sighs> nice. Because I have to do the exhale yeah. first, and then yeah. anyway. <laughs> quiet, quiet. <laughs> Haunting, haunting. Breathe, breathe, breathe. So yesterday I was reading a news item that caught my eye and distracted me from all the the world that it is out there outside our doors. Um, it was a news item about homes that are coming up for auction in an Italian village for one euro. 
So that just opened up the floodgates for me for some some daydreaming, some imaginings. And I have to tell you, I got such a serotonin boost from that. And I just felt so, so good. And what I realized I was, what I was doing was wool gathering. Have you ever heard that word? I've heard the phrase. Well, yeah. I had never heard it before. So wool gathering uh, is uh, from the 1550s, indulging in wandering fancies and purposeless thinking to indulge in idle daydreaming or dreamy imaginings. And it's from the literal meaning gathering fragments of wool torn from sheep uh, by bushes and fences, etc. And I just never ever heard of that. But that's exactly what I was doing. I, I just had indulged in some idle daydreaming, um, wool gathering, and it just it just made me feel so, so good. Uh, I did want to just read this from the Dictionary of Phrase and Fable published in 1870 about wool gathering is your wits are gone wool gathering. Your brains are asleep and you seem bewildered. The illusion is to village children sent to gather wool from hedges. While so employed, they are absent and for a trivial purpose. To be wool gathering is to be absent-minded and to be so to no good purpose, uh, which of course I would hardly disagree. For me at this time, um, it was exactly what I needed and was put to very good mental health purpose for me. So that is wool gathering. I encourage everyone to do some wool gathering for their, for their mental health. Well, interestingly enough, I seem to have a word that is the opposite of your word. Oh. And I'm going to introduce it by describing a scenario that you may have found yourself in. You open up a browser and check a news website. Dear Lord, look at those numbers. This is getting ridiculous. When are people going to learn? You switch to your favorite social media site. Oh, crap. Look what that idiot's done now. How do people vote for someone like that? A different social media site now. That one person you knew in high school is ranting again. Why are you friends with this person? There's an argument in the comments. Now it's an hour later and you're exhausted and angry. But instead of turning it all off and playing with a cat, you switch to another website and keep scrolling. According to Merriam-Webster... Doom scrolling oh. or doom surfing are new terms referring to the tendency to continue to surf or scroll through bad news, even though that news is saddening, disheartening, or depressing. So, yeah, the exact mm -hmm. opposite of wool yeah. gathering is like wool gathering in the worst way. Yeah. The terms are relatively new and obviously inspired by the way so many of us doggedly follow news about the COVID-19 pandemic or current politics, even when we get oversaturated by the doom and gloom that that can bring upon us. The behavior isn't entirely new, of course. I remember how intensely focused on the news I and many others were after September 11, 2001. It took months before I finally stopped watching way more news than was healthy for me. Staying aware of the world around us is generally a good idea, but in an age where information flows so freely, it's important to make sure we manage our attention with an eye to maintaining our emotional and mental health, too. Like maybe a little healthy wool gathering mm -hmm. instead of doom scrolling. Mm -hmm. Seriously, like you should have maybe just stumbled upon this article where you can buy a house in Italy. It's falling down, but still for one euro, we could like go there, do some podcasts, I, you know. New time to read headquarters. Yeah. Is that what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. I, I don't want to be a, a doom a doom gatherer. Or, <laughs> but are these houses a, a euro because there were people 
people who had died of COVID? No. Oh, well, I was thinking like it's in Italy. So like, no, no, are they- no, no, no. Some of them <laughs> like are in kind of disarray because of an earthquake. <laughs> but- oh, well. <laughs> That's okay. No, I think some of these little villages just, you know, everyone's moving out of the villages into the into the cities. And so they, they're wanting to attract folks to come and revitalize the villages. <sighs> Time to read. Headquarters in breathe, Sicily. Breathe, breathe, breathe. <sighs> well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For November, we're reading The Water Dancer by Tanahisi Coates, as selected by the members of our Facebook group in a poll we were running after our last episode. If you want to tell us what you think we should read next, connect with us on social media or through email. You can find all of our contact info at the bottom of our page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all of our past episodes and discussion questions there too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to read. Read. Yours was much better. Can we hear it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, my stomach story would have been. <laughs> 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 oh, I, I think that's that sounds is like that, Dennis. Is that, <laughs> is that Dennis or a gasping walrus? I don't. I don't know.